Now, if we're going to get a glimpse, just a glimmer of the rise of a new Holy Roman Empire, we, we've got to first inspect the characteristics of the nature of her past. I think there's no better chapter, therefore, to go to than the one in which we have read chapter 12. Because if you look in Revelation chapter 12, and, and you notice there in verse 3, it's a scary image, young people, this terrifying image. But we've got here a red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. Now, this is what to be pagan Rome. That being Rome, that was in existence during the times of the Lord Jesus Christ and the early apostle movement. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because John here is receiving this vision under that very era, imperial Rome. But I want us to notice a couple of things here, because the fact that it is imperial in Rome, we know, don't we, that it was the Caesars. It was the emperors who ruled the Roman earth. And you see, in the spirit of Genesis chapter 3, just like the serpent, it was the Roman emperors who saw themselves as gods. That they and they only had the knowledge of good and evil. And that under their authority, under their reign, Rome surely wouldn't die. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That the figure that God likens this well, it's no surprise to us in verse 9 that it's likened to the serpent. Because of the exact spirit of this empire. Verse 9, it's like the old serpent, that ancient evil there in existence. The devil and Satan. There's something about this dragon, brothers and sisters and young There's something about this empire that operates in the effects of sin that have been in existence in the dawn, since the dawns of the ages. The dragon of Rome, of Revelation chapter 12. And it demanded subjects to worship the empire. And if not, well, we all they were sent to the mouth of the lions. And that makes sense as well. Because you'll notice God, this pagan dragon as the serpent, also likened to, well, devil and the Satan. Now, we know the devil is sin, isn't it? It's a representation of sin, and we know that the Satan is a, a manifestation of an opponent because we have an opponent of sin who's likened to the serpent. And I think the Apostle Peter has a lot to say about this through the Spirit in his first letter. Because he says in that letter that Rome is the opponent. That Rome is the devil. And that it's Rome who will throw you to the mouth of the lion. And that is exactly here, the spirit of the dragon we see in Revelation chapter 12 and in verse 9. There's a few more details I'd like us to quickly go through because you'll notice in verse 3, it also says that this particular dragon has seven heads, seven arcing heads in this vision. And we only have to go to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 10, and we're told explicitly there that those seven heads speak of seven kings. And if we were to look through our history books, 
And we'd find out that there were indeed seven kings of the Roman Empire. In fact, a better way of putting it is that there were seven Roman phases. Seven governments roamed the Roman Empire, right from its origins to right to its demise in 476 AD. It only makes sense, doesn't it? For the heads speak of those seven forms of government. But notice something else as well. There's not just seven heads. Each of these seven heads has seven crowns. And what we're seeing here is that those seven powers of Rome through its, each of its phases, God is simply saying that at the moment, those seven heads have sovereignty over the empire. They're in power over it. And the crowns is a much one more wonderful image, isn't it? To show those seven phases, giving the seven sovereignties of the governing power of the empire. But there's one more piece to the puzzle. Because there's ten horns that sprout out of the heads, out of these seven heads. And you see, what we believe is that those ten horns speak of the pagan barbarian nations that were a thorn in the flesh to Rome at that time. They, they were prickling at the sides of Rome, and soon those, well, soon those ten horns are going to gain a lot of power. There's a, bit, there's a great legacy. There's a great future for those ten horns. But at the moment, it's the heads that are crowned, not the horns. Those ten, those ten um, um, horns are, well, they're subdued. They're subdued by the sovereign power of Rome. And so what we begin to realize is very quickly, and we could go into a lot more detail, is that this dragon represented in Revelation 12 is that pagan system of Rome before it became Christian during the times of the apostles. The horns speak of the barbarian nations, the heads speak of the seven phases, and the crowns speak of the sovereignty of those seven phases. But, brothers and sisters, if this dragon is likened to the serpent, who might you expect to be in opposition to the dragon? Well, we see in verse 4, we have a woman. A woman is introduced right in the heart of Revelation chapter 12. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but this is the very spirit, isn't it, of Genesis chapter 3, where the seed of the woman would have enmity between the seed of the serpent. And here is this woman. And we only go through scripture and we, we can take the theme of the woman through the Bible and we begin to realize right from the Old Testament that transcends into the New Testament that a woman speaks of a religious system. The dragon speaks of a pagan manifestation of the serpent empire that became Rome. And the woman, in like manner, is also a manifestation. And that is going to be a religious system. So which religious system, brothers and sisters, opposed the pagan powers of the Roman Empire during the first century? Well, it was our brothers and sisters. 
our brothers and sisters who have long fallen asleep, oppose the dragon. She speaks of the first century ecclesia in which those early apostles started sprouting up those wonderful ecclesias all across Turkey, all across Greece. And there she is, brothers and sisters, but something has changed with this woman. Because we're told in 2 Corinthians that, well, when Paul was writing through the Spirit, he says, I present the ecclesia as a chaste virgin. And there's a problem. And the problem is that the woman which we greet in Revelation 12, well, she's certainly not a virgin. She's pregnant. And we see that there in verse 4. And if we trace this train of thought, what we begin to realize is if this woman represents the ecclesia, which we believe she does, then the pregnancy began at the conception of seeds of error that were planted into the ecclesia during the first century. And those seeds of error have caused doubt in the ecclesia. And over time, something is going to happen. There's going to be a birth that is about to be yielded right here in Revelation chapter 12. Now, the gestation period, I know a bit about this because my dear wife is pregnant, right? And the gestation, the gestation period of a woman is around about 280 days. Between conception and birth, it's about 280 days. Now, if we use the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as our example and add 280 years from that day, what we find is that in 280 years, the child of this woman was to reach the zenith of his power. A special child is to be born from the woman. And brothers and sisters, let me, let me make this abundantly clear. She is not to produce the seed of the woman. This woman is to give birth to the sea of the serpent. What we see in Revelation 12 is the origins of what we now call the Antichrist system. It all began here in pagan Rome in Revelation chapter 12. And notice, well, the child that was to be born in verse 5, he was going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, if I use that phrase, iron, our minds should go to Rome. It's Daniel chapter 7, it's Daniel chapter 2, it's Deuteronomy chapter 28. This child is going to be a Roman emperor. And he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so formidable, so brilliant, so ingenious was this child that he grew up to be a man and that man grew up to be a warrior and that man then grew into becoming an emperor that in his power and no one saw it coming he dethroned the dragon 
who took the crowns off the heads of the dragon. He admonished pagan Rome. You could say, brothers and sisters, that in the antitype, the child of this woman took upon the government on his shoulders of Rome. You see, he's the antitype. And now a great change is going to happen across the landscape of Rome. God describes it as being a political earthquake. What's going to happen is one empire or one phase is going to be overthrown by another. One government is going to be replaced by another. So I'm going to ask the question, and we're all there, brothers and sisters, aren't we? Who, in the ancient of days, dethroned pagan Rome and dethroned the dragon empire? Who was it who demolished paganism in Rome? It was a man called Constantine. And you know, in 2 Thessalonians 2, when Paul writes of Thessalonica, when the seeds of error had started to germinate, he had said to them that the mystery of iniquity had already worked, that there was to be a child, a man, the son of perdition, he describes, a man of sin that was to be born, and that man was going to present and lay a foundation of apostasy right through the ages. This was the child of Revelation chapter 12 who dethroned the dragon. And you know what, Constantine, honestly, he was a, he was a genius in many ways. You know that? He was a political genius, but he was a spiritual disaster. You see, what was happening in Rome at the time there were, well, there were issues outside of Rome and inside of Rome. We know, don't we, that there were those barbarian tribes that were gaining sovereignty and power and jurisdiction within the Roman Empire. And according to Constantine, the empire of Rome will not diminish. He was fixated, he was obsessed on the power of Rome. And he had to deal, firstly, with those barbarian tribes. And so what he did... He split Rome in two, right from the center, from the west to the east. And what he did was he took his militant seat of power that was based in Rome, and he simply moved that seat of power and extended it right to a place known as Constantinople. And that should give you a clue, shouldn't it, in the origins of that ancient great city. He named it after himself because he was a modest man, was Constantine. Constantinople. Now that empire developed its own future. It developed its own story. It developed its own myth and legend. Because what was to happen to the Eastern Empire was eventually going to become known as Byzantium. The Byzantium Empire. And he had no idea what he was doing. Well, he did really, but spiritually he had no idea because he was going to set the course that was going to soon bring about an empire in which we now are watching for. Little did he know that just shy of 2,000 years later, Bible students all around the world 
will still be looking at Byzantium. That's the legacy he left. And Byzantium then became the militant power of Rome. The militant power of Rome was in the east. Now, if that was in the east, what was in the west? What is Western Rome most famous for today? Well, I would make the suggestion it is politics and it's its religion. And so the militant power moved to the east and the political religious element lurked and remained in the west. And with that being said, he did one more thing which was momentous. You've got to remember now that we're still in pagan Rome. And not only did Constantine have issues outside of his empire, but he was having growing insurrection and unrest within his realm. He had enough to deal with outside, let alone inside. Rome was almost falling before his eyes and he needed to do something about it. And what was the problem in the streets of Rome? Civil war was growing. It was between two groups, two religious groups, the Christians and the pagans. Both hated one another because the woman is in opposition to the dragon. And so what he did, he got baptized <laughs> and he Christianized Rome just like that. And the whole empire became Christian. Now, he's got a problem. There's one thing about these type of dynamics is we're always trying to reach a compromise, aren't we? Now, he had eased the pressure from the Christians, but there was going to be terrible unrest from the pagans. So what did he do to please both parties. Well, he took all the pagan traditions, all the pagan ways of worship, and simply transferred them into Christianity. Thirteen years later, the doctrine of the Trinity was signed and sealed in Nicaea, in Byzantium. And the truth the apostles had pleaded with it evaporated in time. It was gone. Save for a woman in the wilderness, a remnant brothers and sisters. And centuries later, she's still here. The remnant in opposition to the serpent. And Rome there became Christian. And you see what's going to happen. And this is really for our young people, to be honest with you. Because what's going to happen now, when Rome was split into two, the Bible now is going to introduce another party. Because at the moment, if you can see on the screen, Rome is just one dragon with seven heads, seven crowns, and ten horns. And the moment Constantine split Rome, the Bible now is going to introduce a new creature who we call the beast of the sea. 
And what the beast of the sea is going to do, he is going to dethrone the dragon because that's exactly what Constantine did. He took the crowns, he took the horns, and he took the heads. And so now the Bible introduces a new beast. The dragon goes into the east, which remains as Constantinople in Byzantium. And the beast remains in the west. And if you notice in your scriptures, brothers and sisters, you'll find out right there that the beast had seven horns, sorry, seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. It's the same idea, isn't it? But rather it being a dragon, it's a beast. A dragon, poor chap, he's lost his heads, he's lost his crowns, and he's lost his horns, and he's then been demoted and gone into the east. And this is where a lot of attention is focused on in the book of, the Re- in the book of Revelation. A lot of it is going to focus on the future and the history and the heritage of the ecclesia in how it grew in Rome. The focus of that is going to be on the beast. And this is why in Daniel chapter 2, well, we have two legs. Because those two legs speak of the two empires of Rome. One in the west, the beast. One in the east, the dragon. So let's have a look, brothers and sisters. Let's have a look at Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to look at verse 1. This is the beast that came out of the sea. And it comes out of the sea because the focus is that it is going to be a coastal animal, a coastal creature, right? Notice it says in Revelation 13, verse 1, a beast rose up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns. That's the same language that we read, isn't it? In Revelation chapter 12, the difference is, brothers and sisters, the huge difference is that this beast is not pagan. He's not the pagan dragon. He's the Christian beast. And all the sovereignty and all the religious power that was on the dragon now transfers right onto the beast. But there's one little nugget. There's one slight little difference between the beast and the dragon, and that there is in verse 1. Because if you remember that on the dragon, it was the heads that were crowned. He doesn't say that about this creature, does it? This time you'll notice that it's the horns that are crowned. They're ruling themselves. The horns are. You know that? And if we know our history a little bit, If we place those horns as those barbarian tribes and now they have sovereignty, what we begin to realize is that we are beyond now in time into the future. Rome, as we know it as an empire, has fallen and we've gone beyond the date 476. So not only does the beast change, but time is changing as well. And that's why we call it the continuous historic interpretation of Revelation, because we're moving forward in time time. So now, those barbarian tribes that ransacked Rome have now taken governments of the ancient world. And if we follow those horns through time, we find out remarkably that they provide the basis of what we now call modern day 
Europe, the Franks. It wasn't that many years ago where a piece of currency was found in France called the Franc. Remarkable, isn't it? Because the horns provide the foundation for modern-day Europe, and they've been crowned, and those horns are now ruling themselves. And now what we're going to find is that that beast is going to change through time. You know, a bit like us, isn't it, really? Let's be honest. As we get a bit older, we start getting pimples on our noses, warts somewhere, you know, and we start changing, don't we, as we physically age. And a bit like us, right, this beast, too, is going to change in time. So let's just have a quick look at them. Revelation 12, so we'll start right from the beginning. We've got the pagan dragon, and that pagan dragon will change. He's going to transfer all of his sovereignty onto the beast. And the beast then is what we've just seen in Revelation 13, verse 1. So we're now beyond the time in which Constantine split Rome. And what he's going to do is going to set two points of history forward. Two stories he creates. He's going to create two empires with their own future. And we're going to focus very quickly on the one in the West, right here, who begins with the beast of the sea. And then the beast of the sea is going to change. If you look at Revelation 13, you scan your eyes across verse 11 and 8. It's no longer the beast of the sea. A new beast is going to be shown to us, this being the beast of the earth. And now it's no longer a coastal creature like we saw with the beast of the sea, a Mediterranean beast. Now this beast that rises new is an inland beast. It's the beast of the earth. It's a Germanic beast is this one. We find in this phase, this is where the papacy is fulfilled in Europe. But I want us to focus just on this beast for a second. Because you notice in verse 11 and 14... That this beast, right, this beast speaks like a dragon and deceives all the earth. Now, I want you to answer this question in your heads. If he speaks like a dragon, who does he speak like? Pagan, Rome. He speaks just like his ancestor. Well, there's a difference. He's dressed up like a lamb. A beautiful, cute little lamb. But he speaks like a dragon. I think the Lord Jesus Christ has a lot to say about this when he talks about wolves entering the ecclesia in lamb's clothing. He looks holy, brothers and sisters, this lamb. He looks wonderfully holy. You could say he's a whited sepulchre. But inwardly, there's just dead man's bones. He's a lamb dressed up like a dragon. He's an absolute charlatan. He's a hypocrite, is this beast. He dresses like something and speaks like something else. What we're seeing here in the Lamb, Revelation chapter 13, which just so happens to be the beast of the earth, is Christianity that overlaps Rome. 
He's just pagan, clothed in Christianity. That's all he is. And the thing is, nothing else had changed. Because we remember, don't we, right at the origins of this particular session, that before with pagan Rome, if you would not yield and wield your allegiance to the might of Rome, you were thrown to the mouth of the lions, weren't you? Under this regime, papal Rome would torture men and women if they would not submit to the pontifical yoke. Nothing has changed. It's a veneer. That's all it is. It's a veneer. You see, he's a lamb. Well, if he's a lamb... He must be holy, surely. He looks holy, doesn't he? If he's a dragon, then he's Roman. And if you notice that he speaks and exercises all of his power, then if he's powerful, he must be an empire. Holy. Roman. Empire. That's the face of Revelation chapter 13. And, and what's fascinating about this particular, I mean, we could go in a lot of detail, couldn't we, with the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. But during this time, that they wore, uh, the, the Pope and the papacy introduced these little things they would wear. They're called pallions. Have a guess what they were made from. Lambs wool. And have a guess how many crosses, black crosses, were on the palliums? Well, you can only see four at the moment, but there's two on the, on the back. And four plus two is six. It just so happens to be, at the end of Revelation, that the number six is highly identified with the beast. It's the Holy Roman Empire. Wrapped up. In Christianity, and you think, don't you, that, well, Rome fell to the barbarians. But if you look at this regime, if you look at their agenda, Rome hadn't broken at all, had it? Because the spirit of Rome lived in the people of medieval Europe. You can crumble a city. You can crumble a building. You can break down a palace, but you cannot break a mentality. And the spirit lived in the Holy Roman Empire. And that brings us then nicely to what we heard Brother Stephen say this morning. Because it's the end of this system in which Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars, introduced liberty, fraternity, Equality, which we have, those frog-like spirits. The Holy Roman Empire began with Charlemagne and was to end in Napoleon. So we're going to see a lot of development now in this beast. Until now, we come to the final one in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. And we come to, well, I, I, I guess the most famous of them all, which is the scarlet-colored beast. And there she is in verse 3. Just notice uh, in verse 3, and uh, just keep a clock really, a count of, of the seven heads 
and the ten horns. It's still the same part of the Roman Empire. We've just moved forward in time. It is now what we suggest to be modern day Europe. And notice here in verse, well, in verse three to six, we've got a woman on the beast. We've met a woman before, haven't we? We met a woman in Revelation chapter 12, a pregnant woman. She's now a harlot. What a tragic story. The woman who rides the beast. And if she's she's a harlot, then she's absolutely faithless. It's the final phase. And if we have a woman, and we know a woman speaks of a religious system, then what religious system placards itself as the centre and the heartbeat of modern-day Europe? What system do you think it's going to be? And I think you know the answer, don't you? Well, it has to be Roman Catholicism. And I think the clue, Roman, gives it away, doesn't it? Roman Catholicism, a geopolitical group of United Nations centred around a false religious enterprise. And that's what she is. You know, when we think about Europe, the European Union's heritage goes right back to 1957, in which they started up, started it off with a title. You know what the title was? The beginnings of Europe. The Treaty of Rome. I think that gives a clue away as well, doesn't it? But it's not changed. The beasts have changed, but the mentality remains consistent. Their model, the European model, they're not remaking the wheel, right? They're not innovative brothers and sisters. Their legacy and their future in their minds is simply Rome. And that's what she wants. She wants Rome reborn. And we know when we walk around Europe, right, and we see various symbols, we we see, don't we, the woman and the beast. It becomes a very popular thing in modern day pop culture and particularly in the European sectors. But did we know that that woman, okay, that we see riding the Grecian bull, she has a name. You know her name? Her name's Europa. And she's an ancient Greek myth. Do you know what the name Europa means? Well, almost every etymologist agree with this. It means West. I think that gives a clue away as well, doesn't it? Her name means West. And you know, when the first time the word Europe was used as a a name to embody these group of nations. It started to be used during the Holy Roman Empire. In fact, the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was a man called Charlemagne. And if you Wikipedia him, it's reliable these days, 
you find that he has a title as well. Do you know what his title is? The Father of Europe. The Holy Roman Empire is now fragmented into the European policy. As we see with the woman on the beast. And at the heart of this Western geopolitical group, we have a ruler of a country, the smallest country on planet Earth. His title is the Pope. He's ruler of the country, the Vatican. He's a bit like Caesar, isn't he, on his own throne, governing his own little empire. And the name the Pope, well, that has a title as well. It's a Latin title. His full name is Pontifex Maximus. Do you know what that means? It means the bridge builder. It was a title given to Caesar. And I don't know about you, but modern day Europe needs to start building bridges. She needs to do it politically. She needs to do it militantly. She needs to do it economically. And boy, does she need to do it religiously. She is desperate to rebuild the Roman Empire to fulfill her wildest dream. And who might you think she's going to look to to fulfill this widest dream, wildest dream? Who might you think she is going to build a bridge to? Her twin brother? In the East, they've been estranged, brothers and sisters. They've been estranged for a long time. But we believe very soon a bridge is going to be built and forged to unite these two together. We're going to see the unity of East and West that hasn't been seen in centuries. And so we have to ask the very pertinent question, what happened to the dragon in the east? Because as, as far as I'm aware, we see him in Revelation chapter 12, and we don't see him again until Revelation chapter 16, which just so happens to be the event of Armageddon. So where is this mysterious creature in the pages of the book of Revelation? Well, I think we've got to do exactly the same to the East than that we did with the West. To get a glimpse and a future of, to get a glimpse and an image of the future of the dragon power, we must first visit his past. And we're going to do that, brothers and sisters, and get that golden thread and tie these passages together by taking our minds to the book of Daniel in chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, of course, is that famous prophecy of the ram and the goat, but our focus is going to be the goat. And you'll notice in verse 21 that God gives us very clearly the identity of this goat. He says very clearly that this animal represents Greece. And in verse 5, with speed, this Grecian goat conquered the then known ancient world. Oh, brothers and sisters, but this goat has a secret weapon. And that is the notable horn between his eyes. 
And we believe that that notable horn is a symbol of none other than Alexander the Great. There he is as the symbol of the horn. And brothers and sisters, we know remarkably well that he rode that Grecian goat to the ends of the earth. The feet of that goat never touched the floor. He took it and fled with it right up into the east. And at the height of his power, at the splendor of his superiority, in great ferocity and glory, then in verse 8, the horn broke off. Alexander's dead. He's gone. What are we going to do? Well, notice in verse 8, it continues and says, Out of the horn of Alexander, four notable horns came in its place when Alexander, the, Alexander died. And Well, we only have to look through our history books. You've got to believe me, brothers and sisters. And I'm sure you do. But that indeed did happen. Because when Alexander the Great died, the spoils of his territory was divided amongst his four most prominent generals. Four of them. One became four. And now these four generals are going to set their own future and their own story because each one of these four powers is highly significant to the future of the dragon power in the east. But notice this. In verse 9, out of one of these horns, it says, a little horn came out of it and waxed fat. So out of one of these horns, one of the horns of the four generals of Alexander the Great, one of those four territories, just a little horn, a tiny little horn, just sprouts out one of them. That horn you see there in verse 9 is the beginnings, is the origins, is the inception of what we now know to be the eastern power of Rome in Byzantium. And it's right there in verse 9. It's just a tiny little horn at the moment. But that horn is going to grow. Now we know, don't we, that Constantinople was placed in Turkey. So, so which do you think of these four powers or these four horns or these four generals do we think the little horn of the eastern power of Rome is going to sprout from? It's going to come out of the territory of the horn of Lysimachia. And it's fascinating what Rome did. Oh, they're just like the serpent, aren't they? Crafty, unyielding and uncompromising. And with great subtlety, they came into the tribe of the territory of Lysimachia and they came to a place known as Pergamon. And what they did in Pergamon is they colonized a city by allying themselves to those in Lysimachia. And Pergamon became, under Roman governments, under Roman authority, under Roman jurisdiction, it became its own mini little power. And brothers and sisters, once Rome had its foot in the door, there was no shutting it. 
the floodgates were open and Rome now had got his foot in the door in the territory of Lysiomachia and there we see the beginnings of that little tiny horn there in the horn of Lysiomachia in the area of what we now call to be Turkey. This became the first base. It became the first place in which that little horn was established. And Pergamon grew, as I said. It, it grew. And well, Rome, of course, grew impatient. Because what we find in Daniel 11, these four horns, particularly two of them, were always squabbling over their territory. And Rome thought, I'm just going to take the lot out. And the first horn went in Macedonia when he took out the territory of Cassander. Four became three. And meanwhile, as Rome conquered the, the area of Macedonia, the Seleucid territory, which was the greatest of all the four territories, well, they took out the territory of Lysiomachia. And that's significant now because, well, the Seleucids now inherited the area of Lysiomachia and they become the sole adoptees, the sole governors of the area of the Lysiomachian area. And now, three become two. And Daniel 11 paints a wonderful picture of the two final horns in which there's great enmity between them as they're fighting out this land. But Rome, well, Rome wanted dominance. And note the phrase, brothers and sisters, note the phrase well, like a whirlwind, he came in like a hurricane and took out Seleucia and took out Ptolemy and there he took the empire of Greece and it was done. And it fell to the Romans. He conquered the residue of ancient Greece. He didn't have to work hard because they'd already been weakened by the amount of squabbling and wars between them. He just simply came in like a flash of lightning and wiped the floor with them. Many years later, Constantine was going to go to that area and he was going to look at the city of Pergamon which was the first eastern base of the Roman Empire. And he was going to move that base and move it to create a capital. And in the very same territory, which is now Seleucia, he took the territory, he took the base, and he made it royal by crowning Constantinople as the now capital of the eastern power of Rome. But what's remarkable, is it wasn't originally called Constantinople, was it? It was originally called Byzantium, which is a Greek name for a Greek city. Do you know what Byzantium means? He-goat. What an indicator to present to us in which the horn of the goat flourished and waxed. Because make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, the horn of the goat started off little in the east, 
But the more Rome came and saw and conquered, the little horn was going to wax great. And Byzantium was the crowning jewel, which means the he-goat. What a sign that we see today. The final piece of the jigsaw puzzle, which I think is the most important part, is the remaining territory. And Daniel 11 tells us about those two horns in the ancient Greek empire who fought and scrapped and warred with each other over the size of their territories. One was at the top and one was at the bottom. One was called Seleucid, the other was called Ptolemy. But make this note, brothers and sisters, that the horn of the goat in the east grew in the Seleucid territory. And God has a lot to say about that territory. In fact, God titles it. You know what he calls it? calls it the king of the north. Whoever occupies the territory of the Seleucid Empire in the east, God says he is the king of the north. And what we find is that the militant power that we see in Revelation, the dragon power of the east, the eastern leg of Nebuchadnezzar, the territory of the king of the north was all started from the little horn in the goat that grew. It's all part of the same regime, you see. That's all it is, these symbols. They're all pointing back to the same story in its origin. The dragon, the leg, the goat, the territory. It's all there in history. The eastern power of Rome. And what happened next is that, well, there was a split, wasn't there, between these two empires in 1054. And the Eastern Empire broke off from her, his twin sister and severed himself from her and he developed his own religion. The religion was called the Eastern Orthodox Church. And they would not submit themselves to the pontifical yoke. And so, well, the East developed into an empire. The two phases, two stories in the West, we had Catholicism. In the East, we had Eastern Orthodox. In the West, we have Rome. In the East, we have Constantinople. In the West, we have the Vatican City. In the East, they had the Hagia Sophia built by Justinian. In the West, there was the beast. In the East, there is the dragon. And they are both proven to be the two legs of Nebuchadnezzar standing tall. But there's one Huge problem. It all happened a few centuries later from 1054 in the 15th century. Because like Rome, Constantinople fell. And it fell swiftly and it fell brutally. It came to a conclusion by a man leading an army called Mehem, Mehet II where he led the Ottoman Turks to the doors and the walls of Constantinople. And using gunpowder, he blew the walls right open. And actually, it was a door that was left open. Can you believe that? A door was left open. 
who might have left that door open, brothers and sisters. The Ottomans came in, ransacked the great era of Constantinople. And for over a thousand years, that empire stood proud and it stood tall. But it fell. Now, if Turkey had taken Eastern Rome, and Eastern Rome was the king of the north, the logical question to ask, who then became the king of the north? Who became the eastern power? Well, it became Turkish. The Ottoman power took the territory, and the Ottoman power took Constantinople. And there's a huge issue here, because if there's anything about Rome, they wanted to guard their heritage, didn't they? As, as far as Roman citizens were concerned, Rome must not die. And what did the Romans do living in the eastern, I say Grecians really, what did the Grecian Romans do living in the east when Constantinople fell to the Turks? What do you think they did? Remember, the sisters, remember that you can destroy a building, you can destroy a temple, you can break down the walls, but you will never kill a mentality. And the most important thing about them was their religion. Eastern Orthodox. And so they took all of their philosophies, they took all of their theology, all of their principles, all of their zeitgeist, and what they did, they fled north. And they created a new base that became the guardian of Eastern Orthodox. Flying up north, they fled. And they set up a new camp, a new town, a new city, a new land that became the adoptee of Eastern Orthodox, that became the guardian and the heritage of Byzantium. Do you know where they moved to? And I know you're already there, brothers and sisters. They set up a new place that we now call Moscow. And now Moscow is heir of Byzantium and heir of the eastern part of Rome and guardian of orthodoxy. And this is why it's so commonly known that Moscow is known as the third Rome. What is the religion of Rome? It's Eastern Orthodox. Now, I've looked at a map a fair few times in my life, and I would never describe Russia as being East. I'd very much describe Russia as being North. But they got their religion from the East at Byzantium. And incidentally, what's another word that we can call Eastern Orthodox? Greek Orthodox. Because it all goes back to the little horn on the goat that grew in Daniel chapter 8. They haven't changed. It's a veneer. They're still following the same thread of thought. They're not pioneering anything, brothers and sisters, are they? They're just dragons and beasts wrapped up in Christianity. That's all they are. And this is why that most famous image that we see young people time and time again, the legs and the feet of iron. There's one huge issue that we have now in terms of awaiting 
for Messiah. Because currently, there is only one foot of Nebuchadnezzar in the earth today. We know that the two feet need to be two Roman feet of Christianity. But currently, there is only one foot. And poor old Nebuchadnezzar has been on one leg for a few hundred years. We're waiting for another leg to grow back. It's currently Turkish, isn't it? And we know, well, the symbol of Turkey, as we had this morning, is the drying up of the river Euphrates. And there's going to be a time, young people, brothers and sisters, where that territory is ripe for the picking. Is that, that's what Rome loves to do, doesn't he? That's what Rome did to Cassander and Macedonia. That's what he did to Thrace. That's what he did to the Seleucids. That's what he did to the Ptolemies. He waits for the right time. He's a lion in prey, waiting to take his victim and he's waiting patiently to come and take back what he calls home. It's currently taken by the Turks. And that drying up of the river Euphrates, well, friends, it's almost dried up. And I think the clue's in the name again. Only Turkey remains from the Ottoman Turks. Now you'll see on the screen there the territory of the King of the North. Now we know, using Daniel 8, Revelation 16, Daniel 2, that the King of the North territory needs to be Christian again before we see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's drying up, but there's still remnants left. You know, there's just pools left. It was a reservoir, it was a river. We're just walking on puddles now. That's all it is. Now look at those four territories. We've got Turkey, Syria, Iran, Iraq, and further afield to the east, if the map couldn't fit it on, is Afghanistan. And those five territories, or those five nations, occupy now what we call the king of the north area, where the little horn on the goat grew, which is the dragon power of Revelation 12. Currently, brothers and sisters, Turkey is the dragon. And currently, Turkey is the king of the north. It's all going to change. It's all going to change rapidly. So I'm going to ask a very pertinent question. Who today do you think has the most influence in the countries of Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Who today is mediating between those four ancient powers? Whose eyes are set upon the territory of the king of the north? I think it's a man we've come very accustomed to over these prophecy days over the years, Vladimir Putin. And he just so happens to be the president of Russia, which just so happens to be the nation in which Eastern Byzantium became. He's Roman brothers and sisters through and through. This isn't about oil. This isn't about politics. This is about rebuilding an empire that took on the ancient world. 
And that's what he wants. And he's devising a scheme. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows his history only too well. And his eyes are set upon that key territory with those four areas. Ezekiel 38 verse 7 says that Gog is going to be the guardian of them. That's funny, isn't it? He's going to be the guardian of them. And the area is almost dried up. And we've got the phrase, haven't we? The drying up of the river Euphrates. Do you know what Daniel 11 says about the new king of the north? Daniel 11 says he's going to flood him. Like a, like a dam bursting, he's going to flood and gush the water and rebuild that ancient territory. Ezekiel 38 and verse 4 says that he is to return back. Back where? There is Gog returning back to. He's returning back to the territory of the king of the north that was in the east. Now there's a phrase, isn't there? <laughs> That's where he's going back to. And just like we saw where Rome stamped out the residue of ancient Greece, Gog, in very like manner, is going to stamp out the residue of the Ottoman Turk. We're going to see a repeat of what we saw with the goat in Daniel 8. And he's going to come quickly, critically, and brutally. And it doesn't matter, young people. It really doesn't matter what we call this territory. And in fact, God doesn't care, frankly, either. He doesn't care if it's Alexandria. He doesn't care if it's Seleucia. He doesn't care if it's Rome. He doesn't care if it's Byzantium. He doesn't care if it's Ottoman. or He doesn't really care if it's Russian. All he cares about is it's the king of the north. And Russia is its final phase. It has to be. It just has to be the final phase. How long do you think, brothers and sisters, really now, How long do you think it's going to be until Russia claims those four territories and becomes the king of the north? Because many brethren who've dedicated their entire life to this subject tell us that if he does and when he does, we won't even be there to see it. We won't see, brothers and sisters, just maybe, we won't see this story play out because Christ has already visited the household of faith. So the question is, how long do you think it's going to be, really, when we watch the news, until he takes those four territories? Because once he becomes king of the north, there's no stopping him. He's going to come and take Turkey. And he wants Turkey. Why? Because that's his sacred ground. That is where Constantinople still is and where the Hagia Sophia still stands tall. And Daniel 11 verse 40 says that like a whirlwind, he's going to come and take them. Our final chapter, brothers and sisters, is Ezekiel chapter 38. And I promise you, we're done Ezekiel chapter 38, Revelation 16 tells us that the drying up of the river Euphrates is there to prepare the saints 
and we're watching it right before our eyes. And you notice, obviously, in verse 15, at the final phase of Gog, he comes from the north parts. And now in verse 4, well, we see that Gog is a chief. He's a militant leader now, is the man head of Gog. The personification is that name, Gog. He's a militant chief. Daniel 8 tells us, the chapter which we went, that out of the horn of the goat in the east, a king shall stand of fierce countenance. And if it's not Putin, brothers and sisters, he's certainly shown the spirit of it. We don't know who he's going to be. But there we see a man right now, as we speak today, a man of fierce countenance. And in the West, there were Caesars, weren't there? Do you know what they were in the East? Sars. We're witnessing the rise of a new Tsar. And he's trying to build Christian denomination, isn't he? Between East and West. And there we have the Pontifex Maximus, the great bridge builder, building between the two. And this is going to be the final phase of Nebuchadnezzar's image. The militant power in the East, in which it's always been, and the religious political power in the West, which it's always been. And here is our map of ancient Rome, what we've become accustomed to. And if you get all the nations of Ezekiel chapter 38, you kind of work out, really, who they're going to line with in the latter day. What do you think the image is going to look like? Have a look. It's the same empire, but on a global scale. And there we have the rise of a new Holy Roman Empire. And we've made this point before. And we may have heard this point many times, but notice we've got the man, Gog, of the land of Magog, right there. And historians tell us that those, that territory is between two very famous rivers, Danube and Don, which is now modern day what? Ukraine and Belarus. There's a clue. Belarus. He's becoming before our eyes Gog of the land of Magog. And why is he attacking Ukraine right now? Why is he doing it? He's justifying an attack on Ukraine because of what he calls Kievian Rus. Kievian Rus was the very first name of that territory right there in Central Europe. You know, this isn't about the Soviet Union, brothers and sisters. This is about Byzantium. And he's justifying a move on innocent people because of ancient history. Can you imagine if Sunak did that? We'll invade Norway because of the Vikings. Well, that's what he's doing. It's a holy religious war. And if he can justify a move on Ukraine based upon Byzantium heritage, what other country do you think he could justify a move on based upon the very same thing? The crown jewel of them all. Turkey. Constantinople. And when he does, make no mistake about it, 
He will become the go of Ezekiel 38. He will become the eastern foot of Daniel 2. He will become the dragon power of Revelation 16. He will become the king of the north of Daniel 11. He will become the gathering of nations of Zechariah 14. And he will become the horn of the goat in Daniel 8. All together, all in one swift motion. And I'll leave you with this question. Who else was part of Byzantium in the ancient world? You see, he's trying to build a monopoly. This isn't a war on politics. This is a war on religion. It's a holy crusade. And this man's obsessed. I think he wants a lot. And I think he wants Catholicism. I think he wants Eastern Orthodox. I think he wants, certainly wants Turkey, the Ottoman, the Muslims. What is next on his agenda? Who else was part of the Byzantium power? What is the most treasured possession in the Middle East? What, brothers and sisters, and here's the crucial world, is the spoil of his victory? Jerusalem. A full religious monopoly. And there he will face, as we began, with the woman and the man. Because these signs, as Isaiah tells us, are contractions. The world is in labor, and she is ready to give birth to the son of the man, son of man. And at the end, the dragon power of the east, just as we saw in Revelation 12, will greet the man-child of the virgin woman with his bride. And there, finally, at the end of those things in Armageddon, the Lord will dethrone and vanquish the dragon until the end of time, beyond those thousand years when he shall return. But that is another story altogether.